All right, so this, uh, this evening we are beginning to look at this uh, subject of uh, typology. And um, uh, we've, we've covered this material before. We've covered uh, much of this material before, but of course uh, things have changed over the years. We've got uh, uh, different people, so I'm, I'm not sure who, uh, if, if, you, if you've heard any of this material before, but if you have, it's a refresher. Uh, if you haven't, um, hopefully it'll be uh, beneficial to you. But again, as I said, the subject tonight is typology. Now, um, the word, of course, typology is a word that I think for most Christians is a foreign word. But you don't hear that very often. And the first thought that probably comes to many people when they hear that word is, what, what is that? Right? Are we just are we making up words here? Is this, this, is, is this a biblical word? I've, I've never heard this before. You will also rarely find Bible studies that address this topic, uh, much less will you find many that will even hint at it. And it is probably even more rare that you will come across a church teaching on it. Right? Um, even in a lot of um, academic works, dealing with the subject of biblical interpretation. In many of them, you do not find discussions of typology. In fact, I just got a, a new book in. It's How to Read the Old Testament. It's uh, written by uh, Dominic uh, Hernandez. And uh, there's a lot of good in it, a lot of good uh, practical tools on reading and interpre interpreting the Old Testament in particular. But, you know, like a lot of these books that cover the subject, one of the first things I did was open it up, went to the index, and just looked to see, is there even the mention of the word there? And there's not. A lot of books on interpretation have not dealt with this particular subject. At the same time, however, there are many uh, biblical scholars who have recognized the opposite conclusion, namely that Scripture is permeated. It's filled with typology. It is, as uh, one theologian said, Leonard Gopelt, it is everywhere. He, he writes in his book on this very subject, he says, quote, that typology is the method of interpreting Scripture that is predominant in the New Testament and characteristic of it. In other words, when you're reading through the New Testament and you come across quotations of Old Testament texts, what Gopelt is saying is the primary way of reading those texts is through typology, through recognizing types and patterns. Another man, S. Lewis Johnson, says that one of the happiest results of 20th century scholarship has been the rediscovery of the importance of typology for the understanding of the Bible. And he says rediscovery, because you can go back uh, before the 20th century, 19th century, even uh, 18th century, before that, and you see many theologians, pastors, Calvin is one example where you see the references and discussion about typology all over the place. But because of things like the, the, the rise of modern liberalism, Protestant liberalism that denied any sort of unity 
in Scripture, denied any aspect of the supernatural in Scripture, uh, much of biblical interpretation was shaped by these more modern forms of reading Scripture uh, that rejects the fact that Scripture could have any connections uh, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and even between uh, prophets within the Old Covenant itself. Another man, E. Earl Ellis, argues that typological interpretation expresses most clearly the basic attitude of primitive Christianity toward the Old Testament. And then summarizing the views of, of many scholars who have written on this subject, Richard Davidson points out that contemporary Christian interpreters generally agree that one of the basic, if not the basic interpretive keys of New Testament writers in, in unlocking the meaning of the Old Testament is that of typology. Right? Uh, typology, in other words, is not just some minor little detail of biblical studies that scholars like to explore. It is not a small point of theological debate that really doesn't matter uh, where you fall on the issue, like having discussions over whether or not there's going to be a secret rapture. Right? It doesn't really fall into that category. It is a vital aspect of interpreting all of Scripture. In fact, if these various scholars who have written and taught on the matter are right, and I think they are, then typology is essential to reading and understanding the Bible correctly. In addition to this, um, Christians, or um, as Christians, uh, who are disciples of Christ, who are uh, those who follow uh, his teachings and, and the teachings of the apostles and who seek to model our, model our lives in light of it, we have to recognize that if Jesus and the apostles both read Scripture and interpret the world through the lens of typology, recognizing the various patterns, the various ways in which God has worked in the past and will work in the future, if this is how they speak about the world, how they interpret Scripture, then as disciples, we, we have to do the same. Right? We have to be sure that we are approaching Scripture in the same way that the biblical authors are approaching Scripture. I think one of the problems that often happens, even amongst uh, you know, evangelical circles, is that we start with a particular framework or a particular hermeneutic, an approach to reading Scripture, believing that approach is being faithful to Scripture while not paying attention or close enough attention to how the apostles themselves are interpreting Scripture. Just to give an example of this, it's, it's very often said that the most 
Faithful approach to Scripture is what's called the grammatical, historical method of exegesis. So in every text, what you want to do is you want to look at the grammar, look at the meaning of the words, understand the syntax, follow the arguments, and also understand what is the historical context of the text. And once you sort of come to a conclusion about those particular matters, you basically, you've got all your interpretation right. That form of method, or that method of interpretation also often stresses a literal interpretation of Scripture. That, um, uh, maybe let me put it this way, a hyper-literal interpretation of Scripture that forces texts to say oftentimes the very opposite of what they mean while claiming that they're being faithful to Scripture. So we don't want to just start um, with a method of interpretation that we believe is going to be most faithful and then impose that on the text. We want to be very careful that as we are reading the biblical authors themselves interpreting Scripture, we are thinking through how they're reading Scripture to shape how we read it. Um, So, just to give another example, that's why this morning, when we're looking at Psalm 8, I want to go to Hebrews chapter 2, because there you have that very psalm quoted, and you find the author of Hebrews making an argument, making uh, deductions, drawing inferences from that text. That's a key place where I want to understand as best as possible how the biblical author himself is interpreting this psalm. What's the lens through which he is reading it? And then I want to emulate that. Now, typology then, if we understand that this is um, a, uh, an approach, if you will, or a um, way of understanding Scripture that both Jesus and the apostles uh, carried out, Typology is therefore an aspect of Christian discipleship. When Jesus appeared to his disciples in Luke 24, twice we are told that Jesus opened the Scriptures. Verses 32 and 45, he opened the Scriptures to them, and in so doing, He showed them how he fulfilled everything written about him in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And included in his opening of the Scriptures was the fact that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. He's speaking to his disciples and he's saying... This is what the law, the prophets, and the Psalms teach. That the Messiah would suffer, and that on the third day, he would rise from the dead. Now, to put it bluntly, there is not a single text in the Old Testament that directly states that the Christ would rise from the dead on the third day. You can't find a verse like that. 
where Isaiah says in the clearest language, as he does when he's describing the suffering of the suffering servant of the Lord, you can't find a prophet saying something like, the Christ will rise on the third day. It's not there. And yet, this is not only what Jesus says is written, but it's also what the early Christians and the apostles confessed as having happened in accordance with the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 4. It's part of the early church's confession to say this. That in accordance with Scriptures, Christ was to die and then rise on the third day. And this, of course, raises the question, did Jesus and the apostles misinterpret Scripture? Of course, I think we would, we would want to immediately answer them. No. But then the question is why? Did they misinterpret Scripture? Or were they referring to the third day resurrection as being in accordance with Scripture not on the basis of direct prophecy, but on the basis of what we might call indirect prophecy, or what's also called typology. Could it be that they were referring to a pattern of events all throughout the Old Testament where the third day began to take shape as a day of some significance where God revealed Himself in power and where His people were saved even from death itself. And that this very pattern of God's actions ultimately culminates in the resurrection of Christ, His only begotten Son and the representative of God's people. I would suggest that's that's what they're seeing. There is this pattern running all throughout the Old Testament that involves these significant events having to do with death and life, salvation on the third day. Beginning in the very beginning, on the third day of creation, what happens? God causes the waters that are covering the earth to be gathered together, and then He makes the dry land appear. And then, out of the earth, He brought forth vegetation and fruit-bearing trees. The world was uninhabitable. It was deluged, if you will. And then on that third day, the waters recede and life-giving vegetation begins to appear. In addition, water all throughout Scripture is often the means that God uses to bring judgment, and then out of that very judgment, salvation. He, of course, covered the earth with water once again in an act of judgment in the days of Noah, and then, once again, He calls the dry land to appear after the judgment. Genesis 8, 2-4. 
parallel account to the creation narrative and one that through the waters then brings salvation to a new world. In the Exodus, of course, God threw the Egyptians into the sea as an act of judgment while saving His people through that very same sea as He parted it and turned it into dry land for them to walk on. In, excuse me, in Jonah, of course, as an act of judgment, Jonah was swallowed up by a whale and cast into the depths of the sea. And as an act of salvation, he was then vomited up by the fish on dry land. We read that in Jonah chapter 2, verse 10. Later, much later, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, Paul describes the people of Israel passing through the sea as a baptism into Moses. They were, in essence, led through the waters of judgment and they came out as those who had been saved, similar to how Christians are buried with Christ in baptism, and then they come out of those waters united to Him in His resurrection. And Peter, we know, explicitly calls Christian baptism the antitype to Noah and his family being saved through the waters of judgment in 1 Peter 3.21. And Jesus as well, compares his soon-to-come three days in the grave to the account of Jonah being, if you will, buried in the belly of the whale in the sea. Now, um, interestingly as well, and worth mentioning also, is that in Hosea chapter 6, when Hosea prophesies about the people of Israel repenting of their sin in response to God's judgment of exile. And the people of Israel in the book of Hosea and elsewhere in Scripture are often referred to as God's Son. Right? We know that text that is uh, quoted in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, right? Out of Egypt I called my son. Israel is often referred to as God's Son, His firstborn. Hosea, in this context, is also prophesying about the future salvation of Israel, of God's Son. He's speaking about what will happen after their return from exile, and he speaks of it using the language of third-day resurrection. Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 says this, it says, "'Come, let us return to the Lord.'" For He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down and He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up that we may live before Him. To give another example, when you do the math in the Exodus events, what you find is that the Israelites traveled for three days until they came to the Red Sea to cross it. And then, when they come to Sinai, God commanded them to be ready for His appearance on the mountain 
on the third day. Exodus 19, verse 11. Jonah as well was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. And he described his time there as being in the belly of Sheol, in the grave, buried in the place of the dead, and as being cast into a flood that surrounded him. But of course, eventually, God has mercy on him. And Jonah says that the Lord brought up his life. Literally, he raised him up out of the dead. Now, I'm, just, I'm giving you here a smattering of biblical events and texts, but when you work through this, these repeated themes of water as an instrument of judgment, followed by the appearance of life, whether that be the fruit-bearing trees, the life the tree, trees, the life-giving trees that come from the dry ground, whether that be references to the rescue of the Israelites from the Egyptians, whether that's the rising up from the belly of the whale or Jesus' resurrection appearances. And when you notice that the biblical authors are often using in all of these different texts and all of these different places in Scripture, they're often using the same words and the same phrases to unite these various events together, what becomes clear is that there is an intentional repetition. There's an intentional pattern of acts of judgment and salvation that occur on the third day and that evoke the language of burial, of, of death, and of resurrection and life. And the point being is that when Jesus and the apostles refer to the third day resurrection as an event which occurred in accordance with Scripture, they are not referring to a single text. They are not just saying this was something that Psalm 12 verse 1 said. They are saying, by, by, by linking it together with, with, with being in accordance with all of Scripture, they are saying that there is a pattern of events that reoccurred throughout Scripture and which ultimately culminated in the third day resurrection of Christ. They are, in other words, referring to the typology of Scripture. And therefore, typology is both essential to reading and understanding Scripture and to understanding the unfolding plans of God, as well as essential to the confession of the Gospel. Because that's what they are rooting the confession in. Both the events of Christ dying and being raised and the whole of Scripture that was pointing to these events happening on the basis of these patterned events occurring and reoccurring over and over again. Now, what I want to do tonight is, as we begin looking at this in more detail, I want to simply define what typology is and then unpack that definition 
by outlining some of its main features. Right? We, we don't want to we don't just want to allegorize. We, we don't want to just see some, um, I don't know, reference to a, a red bird and then tie that to the, you know, the blood of Christ because the, you know, the color is the same or something like that. We don't want to be allegorizers. That's not what Scripture does. There, there are features that are uh, present in all biblical types, and we need to understand what those are. What are the things that make a type a type. And we want to know that so that we can identify them in Scripture and see ultimately how they point us to Christ. Now, of course, the, the word typology just simply refers to the study, just like theology is the study of God, typology is the study of types. And the type is a person like David, uh, like Adam, Noah, Abraham, it's a person, uh, it's an event, like the Exodus, or like the exile, um, or it's an institution, like the temple, uh, and the sacrifices that go with it. A type is a person, event, or institution that corresponds to and prefigures, foreshadows, if you will, points forward to a corresponding antitype, which is also a person, event, or an institution which is being foreshadowed. Now, generally, a type is found in the Old Testament, and the antitype it corresponds to is found in the New Testament. Although it is certainly the case that even within the Old Testament, one may find multiple types of the same kind which all find their fulfillment ultimately in the New Testament antitype. And again, when we're talking about an antitype, we're just talking about that, that culmination of the type, that which fulfills the various types and patterns which came before. Uh, so for example... Um, in, just to give one example of this, uh, Jim Hamilton points this out in his book. He has a book on typology. Definitely recommend it. But one of the things that he points out is the fact that the Exodus account, um, uh, or, or excuse me, that Moses writes the Exodus account in such a way that it corresponds to Abraham and Sarah going down into Egypt facing a threat from Pharaoh, and then, and then being liberated by a judgment of plagues. Right? M Moses is the author of Exodus, and he's the author of Genesis. And the way he's writing, recording, describing all of the events that took place at the Exodus corresponds to the things that happened to Abraham and Sarah when they went down into Egypt, had a conflict with Pharaoh, was then delivered by God from Pharaoh, and then brought back into their land. Um, therefore, what, how we would describe this is that Abraham and Sarah's descent into Egypt is what we might call the archetype, or the, the, the first type, 
uh, that, you, that you find in Scripture. So you have, whenever you have a, a, a type, if you will, the very first one would be understood as the archetype, the first type. And then the ones that follow would be called an ectype. And then the last one, the culmination, the fulfillment that you find chiefly in Christ is the antitype, right? Archetype, ectypes, antitype. You have multiple of those leading up to the fulfillment in Christ. And you can have multiple types of the same kind in the Old Testament, which all reach their fulfillment in the New Testament. Now, Although there are many scholars who do recognize the presence of typology in Scripture, there are many who also raise objections to it, and they argue essentially that this is just another form of allegorical interpretation. This this just has to do with the cleverness of the interpreter and, and what kinds of things that he can find in the text that may not truly be there. Uh, The problem with this objection, though, is that allegory, generally speaking, has no constraints to it at all. Allegory is not tied to any historical meaning of the text. What separates typology from allegory is that it is marked by certain features, all of which are rooted in the historical meaning of the text and the author's intention. In other words, just to reference Moses again, Moses is intentionally recording certain details about the life of Abraham and Sarah that correspond to the events of the Exodus so that we and his original audience would make the proper connections. God is doing again what He had done before. And He will do again in the future what He has done in the past. Or we might say, something like or something patterned after His past actions. So, what are some of the features that you find within Scripture that Make a type a type. And one is what we might call historical correspondence. Historical correspondence. Again, types are not spiritual ideas or principles that are detached from the text of Scripture, but rather they are historical persons places or events in Scripture that correspond to other historical persons, places, or events in Scripture. Some would refer to this correspondence as analogical. There there is an analogy between the two. This is like that. There's a similarity in the relationship between the type and its fulfillment, the antitype. And this relationship is one that is rooted in real history. So for example, Romans chapter 5, verse 14, Paul, in this context, is comparing how sin spread through the one man, Adam, 
with how grace and righteousness spreads through the one man, Jesus. And he says that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. This is where you get the language itself. This is why we, we speak of types and typology because this is the language that the biblical authors are using when they are speaking about these patterns, these events, these persons, these institutions. Adam, in this case, is a type of the one who was to come. And the one who was to come, of course, is Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is understood to be the antitype to Adam, the fulfillment, the greater fulfillment. But it's also important to notice here that both Adam and Jesus are, of course, historical figures that are linked together by this typology. Their similarities are rooted in the historical realities, things that actually happened and that are then revealed and described in proper detail throughout Scripture. So, so one, one feature of typology is that of historical correspondence. This real person, this real event foreshadows and is like this real person or event that is to come. Another feature of typology is that it is prophetic and predictive. Some argue that typology is merely what they call retrospective. That is, that the only way that you can recognize any sort of type is by looking backwards. There's no forward pointing. There's no prophetic aspect to it at all. The only way that one can recognize a type is by looking at it through the lens of the New Testament. And furthermore, the New Testament must explicitly identify something as a type for it to be recognized. So that's why sometimes, um, often you will see um, some who, I think rightly, understand the nature of typology will argue that Joseph, in Genesis, Joseph was a type of Christ. But because the New Testament itself does not ever identify Joseph as a type of Christ, many just reject that. You know, they say you, you, you can't do that. It has to be explicit in the New Testament. Biblically, however, one of the features of typology is that it is prospective. Biblical types point forward. They anticipate the fulfillment. They anticipate the antitype. In this sense, typology is prophetic. It is predictive of how God will act in the future. Only, it's not a direct prediction. It's not, again, like an Isaiah 53 sort of direct prediction where the author is saying this exact thing is what's going to happen in the future. It's an indirect form of prophecy. Um, in their book, uh, Kingdom Through Covenant, Gentry and, and Wellam write of this particular aspect of it. I'm going to quote this in full. It's a, it's a good explanation. 
They say that typology is best viewed as a subset of predictive prophecy, not in the sense of direct verbal predictions, but more indirectly in the sense of predictions built on models or patterns that God intends, which become unveiled or more clearly seen as later Old Testament authors reinforce those patterns with the goal of anticipating their fulfillment in Christ. They go on. As God's plan is progressively revealed through the covenants, later Old Testament authors pick up on the previous patterns, which then create a trajectory that New Testament authors rightly recognize as God intended, predictive, and now coming to fulfillment in Christ and the New Covenant age. Now, we will look at this feature and others in more detail in our following lessons. But for now, I want you to just notice what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 and verse 11. In verses 1 to 5, Paul is describing what happened in the wilderness generation of Israelites how they went through the Red Sea, how they ate the manna from heaven, they drank the water from the rock, and how, nevertheless, they perished because of their sins, because of their disobedience and their idolatry. He then says in verse 6, now these things took place as examples. As specifically, the language is, Types. These things took place as types for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then in verse 11 he says, now these things happened to them as an example, as a typological example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Paul here specifically says that the wilderness events of God's supernatural provisions and then judgments were events that took place as types for us. There was, in other words, an aspect of forward pointing in the types themselves. The events happened and then were recorded for later generations to show us the kinds of things that God does and will do. And therefore we have to recognize that typology has an element of propheticness in it. This is also a kind of argument that you find unfolding all throughout the book of Hebrews. Um, We'll look at this one in in more detail at, uh, at a later time, but just for reference, when you read Hebrews chapter 7, for example, when the, the author is um, 
describing this priesthood that Jesus has uh, now entered into, this, this priesthood that is in the order of Melchizedek. He's rooting Jesus' present priesthood in the prophetic statements of Psalm 110. There in Psalm 110, the the Lord says of the uh, exalted Messiah that he is going to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And the, the, the reasoning that the author of Hebrews makes is essentially this. He says, if the Levitical priesthood with its covenant had been sufficient, what further, excuse me, what further need, what further need would there have been for a later priesthood after the order of Melchizedek? In other words, one of his arguments is that baked within the Old Testament, baked within the Old Covenant itself, was an anticipation that the covenant itself would come to an end and that a greater priesthood would come that would be patterned after that of Melchizedek, which is also uh, something that uh, unfolds in the life of David. Melchizedek is a kingly priest who rules in Salem or Jerusalem. And likewise, David is a king, an anointed king, who carries out priestly duties and rules in Jerusalem. And these are patterns that are anticipating a greater priest, king-priest, to come. So so this is one of the, the arguments that the author of Hebrews is making, and this is part of the aspect of typology. It's a typological argument he's making throughout the book. Now, another feature of typology is that of escalation. Uh, This is, escalation refers to the reality that certain persons, events, and institutions are repeated throughout the canon, and that this repetition moves in the direction from the lesser to the greater, right? It it escalates, it gets better. In other words, the Old Testament types find their fulfillment in the greater antitype of the New Testament, namely Christ and oftentimes by extension, His people. This does not mean, however, that the escalation moves in a straight line upward throughout the canon. It may be the case that types are repeated in the Old Testament and only find escalation in their New Testament antitype. So, for example, I've already pointed uh, to this one, but Adam is described, obviously, as as a type of Christ, the type of the one who was to come. But throughout the Old Testament, there are other Adam-like figures. Noah, especially, is presented by Moses as a kind of second Adam. Not only does the flood account in many ways parallel the creation account, 
But like Adam, Noah is commanded to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. When, when you read through the, the account of creation and then the account of the, the flood, there's a lot of um, correspondences between the, two, between the two stories. And basically, what Moses is presenting is the fact that Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth, and you have this you know, order of things, the, the, the waters receding and the dry land appearing. And in the flood account, it's basically the exact reverse. Right? There's, a, there's a destruction of the world, and then you see things um, being recreated. That's one of the reasons, for example, that I think Peter says in 2 Peter, he refers to the pre-flood world as the ancient world that then leads into a, a, a new kind of world. And Noah becomes a new Adam. He's the first from whom everyone else is uh, descended. There's a lot of other parallels there that have to do with his, his own sort of royal status and priestly status, but we won't get into that uh, tonight. Um, like Adam also, um, we find that, that Noah uh, works the ground, uh, chapter 9, verse, verse 20. Um, like Adam, of course, he sinned by partaking in a sinful way of the fruit of the ground. Um, he is, uh, he, he's certainly not the fulfillment of the Adam type because he too fails, uh, but he is a kind of, he is a kind of um, to use the language, ectype. Adam is, is the first type of Christ, and, and Noah is another installment in that pattern. And then there's other correspondences that you can find with, with Abraham, and then Isaac, and Jacob, and Israel, and so on, uh, and so forth. The main point, however, is that with any type, there is always escalation and the repetition of types within the movement of escalation that creates an expectation that creates a forward-looking orientation, that more things like this will come in the future. And, and you can just think about how, for example, Noah is a kind of, a kind of Savior. There, there's a judgment that comes upon the world and humanity is saved and restarts through Him, but He's not the Messiah. And how do you know he's not the Messiah? Because he sins. And that's the same kind of pattern we see with a lot of these, these persons. You could think of David, for example, too, or, or David's offspring, maybe a better one. Solomon, right? David's given this promise. He's going to have an offspring who reigns forever. And then Solomon comes to the throne, and you're wondering, could this be the one? And then you find pretty quickly, no, he's not the one, right? He does things that are good. He does things that are righteous and wise. He builds a house for the Lord, but he's a great sinner. And the fact that there is an incompletion in a lot of these patterns, there's a deficiency, if you will, in a lot of these patterns creates an expectation for something more, something like this, but better to come in the future, which is what ultimately happens with Christ. Uh, two more features. One is that typology is Christ-centered. Typology is always Christ-centered. This means that every type in some way finds its fulfillment around and in the person 
of Christ. Now, this does not mean, when I say that, this does not mean that Christ is always the direct antitype. Sometimes a type is fulfilled in Christ himself. For example, Christ is the fulfillment of Adam. Christ is the fulfillment of David and the great high priest. These are all persons who are said to be directly fulfilled by him. But a type may also find its fulfillment in Christ's people or in Christ's ordinances. For example, as we mentioned earlier, the flood finds its antitype in Christian baptism and the final judgment in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. Or, as I mentioned before, 1 Corinthians 10 presents the Christian congregation as the fulfillment of the wilderness congregation of Israel. The nature of the Christ-centered focus of typology then is that it is oriented around His person and work. It is shaped by what He has accomplished, by who He is, and the people He has made and who are joined to Him. And then lastly, typology always recognizes a development throughout the covenants. There is a covenantal progression. And this last feature of biblical typology is that, um, or it particularly emphasizes, um, excuse me, I'm I'm getting twisted up here, Um, it's particularly emphasized um, in, the, in the work of, of Gentry and Wellam. Um, in, in, in their book on, on this subject, they argue that to think through the developments of particular types is to walk through the covenants. So, so for example, um, all of the Adam-like figures in the Old Testament, whether that's Noah, whether that's Abraham, whether that's Israel or David, All of them, one of the things that they all have in common is that they're all covenant heads. Um, God makes the the creation covenant with Adam. And then He makes the Noahic covenant, obviously with Noah. And then Abraham, who is also an Adam-like and a Noah-like figure, He makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes a covenant with Israel. He makes a covenant with David. These are all covenant heads right so so as these types are developed throughout the scriptures it's often tied to the covenants and the progression of those covenants themselves and therefore to understand how each individual relates to previous and subsequent types and then ultimately to the antitype in christ one must understand how God's covenants and promises are unfolding in each of these persons. That's why whenever we're, we're looking at something like this, we have to start, we have to have a base of understanding how the covenants unfold. If we, if we don't have an understanding of how the covenants unfold, we're going to miss the connections between the various types that are unfolded throughout Scripture. 
Uh, but these are some of the, the key features. This is something that, that you can recognize in each of the types that are found without, uh, throughout Scripture, whether that be related to persons in Scripture, whether that be related to events in Scripture, or institutions. They all have these various features um, uh, that, that, that are tied to them. But as we'll see, we'll, we'll look at particular examples of this the way in which all of, the all of the biblical authors are speaking about things to come in the future is through this lens. It is not just something that the New Testament authors make up to make sense of Christ. That's what sometimes liberal uh, liberal scholars will, will say about the New Testament authors. They are misquoting and twisting Old Testament texts to make them make sense of Jesus. Again, you go to something like the Gospel of Matthew and you read the quotation from Hosea where it says, out of Egypt I've called my son. You go back to the original context of Hosea, and it doesn't seem like there's any uh, talking about the Messiah who's to come. And yet Matthew is specifically saying that Hosea said this with reference to Christ. The charge that, gets, uh, that, that then gets um, hurled at the New Testament authors is that they're just butchering Scripture in order to make sense of Christ. And what I'm saying, what typology is saying, is, is no, no, no. <laughs> they are seeing much, much more throughout the whole of Scripture. They are recognizing, recognizing patterns all throughout the Old Testament. And they're taking their cues of interpretation from the Old Testament authors themselves. And that's one of the things we'll, we'll look at. Moses is the one who sort of uh, gets the ball rolling, if you will. As he writes the first five books of the Old Testament, he's the one who is intentionally drawing these connections and writing the events of the lives of God's people and the various works of God throughout the first five books so that you will recognize these patterns that are occurring and reoccurring. And then the prophets who follow him recognize how Moses has told the story of redemption and they emulate it. They do the very same things. Isaiah, for example, speaks of the coming day of salvation often using the language of the Exodus. Basically saying that after the exile, God is going to do another Exodus event for His people. And that ultimately finds its fulfillment in Christ and the redemption of His people from their bondage in sin. So again, we'll, we'll look at... Uh, We'll look at examples of this in more detail, but those are your main features uh, that are found all throughout um, typology. So let me, uh, let me close there. I know that, that may be a lot, but we'll, we'll stop there and then um, uh, we'll, we'll close with prayer, okay? 
Well, Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the many riches that are found uh, throughout. We thank you that you give us minds, you give us hearts to understand, to plow into your word, to meditate on it. And you help us, Lord, through study to see the many works that you have been doing in the world that ultimately all lead to Christ and his person and his work. And Lord, we always want to be faithful in everything we do. We want to be faithful in our handling of your word. As Jesus taught his own disciples how they were to understand the Old Testament with reference to him, we seek to do the same. We seek to learn at the feet of Jesus and the apostles. And so we do pray that you would grant to us minds, that you would enlighten our hearts through the work of the Spirit, that we might understand your works and your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 